You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning. As Pastor Matt said, we're going to be continuing our, our teaching through the book of 1 John. So if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles around you, we'll be on page 1022. It's all the way at the very back of the Bible. So as, as long as I can remember, for as long as I can remember, two primary questions have kind of dominated my spiritual thought life. The first question is, is Christianity true? Now, I'm currently preaching a sermon at a Christian church on a Sunday, so that is some indication of where I landed on that question. The second question is, if Christianity is true, how do I know if I am one? In other words, I'm not asking whether or not I should believe in Christ, but whether or not I should believe that I have believed in Christ. How do I know if my belief is genuine? Right? Like if Christianity is true, then there is a heaven and there is a hell, and my faith being genuine is the determining factor about where my soul goes for eternity. That's a big deal. So how do I know if I've truly believed or if my faith is false? We probably all know people who at, at one time lived for Christ with a sort of passionate zeal who today no longer call themselves Christians. Right? We know people who 10 years ago, especially like if you grew up going to youth group or if you grew up um, going to a Christian school, you probably know dozens of people who at one time had one of those Bibles that looked like it like had just barely survived a hurricane of highlighters who now no longer follow Jesus at all. Maybe you're here this morning and that's you. If that's you, I I just want to be another person to tell you, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm honored that you're here this morning. In fact, I believe that you're here for a reason, and I believe that reason is that God is not done with you yet. So I'm not saying these things to shame people who have renounced their faith, but to say to those of us who call ourselves Christians and follow Jesus now, how do you know if your faith is genuine? How do you know if you really believe this? The human capacity for self-deception is staggering. From the years 2005 to 2007, I, unironically, wore a studded belt because I thought it was cool. And if I could deceive myself about that, who's to say I couldn't deceive myself about something far more important Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount, he virtually ends his famous Sermon on the Mount by saying that people will come to him someday who call him Lord, who do many mighty works in his name, who prophesy in his name and in his name cast out demons. And he will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 talks about this hypothetical person who is willing to give up their body to be burned, to be martyred for their faith who all the while doesn't even have the essential elements of it. 
In other words, it's possible to trick everyone around you into believing you are a Christian when you're not. You can come to Liberty Church week after week after week, convince us all that you're a Christian and not be. Even scarier, it is possible to come to church week after week after week and convince yourself you're a Christian and not be. In the book of 1 John that we're teaching through, one of the primary themes is John is writing to Christians to give them ways that they can boost their spiritual confidence. And this morning, that's the main point of our text. John is writing to help these Christians know where to look when they begin asking the question, how do I know if I've truly believed? And so follow along with me as I read from 1 John 3, verses 19 to 24. He says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, through your only son who overcame death, you opened to us the light of eternity. So we pray this morning that you would now enlighten our minds and kindle our hearts with the presence of your spirit that we might hear your words of comfort and challenge as we study your scriptures. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the, the theological term for what we're dealing with this morning is called assurance of salvation. And here in our text this morning, John is going to highlight three places to look when we need assurance and whether or not, when we're questioning whether or not we really believe. Throughout the scriptures and throughout even this book, there are dozens of places that we could look for assurance. And John is just going to highlight for us three directions to look. First, he's going to say, look in. Second, look out. And finally, look up. Look in, look out, and look up. First, let's talk about look in. As John ends this section, so bring your eyes all the way down to verse 24. He writes, By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We can believe that we believe because the Spirit lives in us. Or as the Apostle Paul says, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, having the Spirit testify with our spirit means many things. But at the very least, it means a deep, psychological, even emotional assurance that you belong to God and that his spirit is inside of you. This is what the theology of fellowship with the spirit looks and feels like when we live it out. Now, it is more than an emotional encounter for sure, but it's not less. The Holy Spirit is not a principle to live by, or a power to wield, even a presence to enjoy, but a person to know, love, and experience life with. 
He living in us is not some poetic metaphor to believe, but a person to fellowship with. And that fellowship requires that we encounter him. Now, probably at least a few of you started wriggling in your seats just a little bit. Both because like this idea of experiencing the spirit has been the source of incredible spiritual abuse, emotional manipulation, and unnecessary spiritual guilt. And we're right to feel a little bit of unease whenever someone starts talking like this. But also, I think we're uncomfortable with it because if we're honest, in our highly educated, respectable, buttoned up, theologically reformed, fashionably cynical cultures, we have swung the opposite direction and tend to be unhealthily suspicious of anything regarding feelings, emotions, or language about encountering God. Like, look around you. We're a logical bunch. We operate logically, and we operate on this logical paradigm with experience that says, like, if I'm going to be open to experiencing something, you need to convince me of it first, and then if I find it reasonable, I'll be open to the experience. But that's just not how the Holy Spirit works all the time. Throughout Scripture and throughout Christian history, often people have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that is intense, personal, and intimate, and then on the back end have to figure out what the heck just happened for them because they don't have a category for it. And that's not a bad thing. It is healthy and normal to experience the Holy Spirit in our emotional lives. In fact, it is by these experiences that John says we can have a boost of confidence that we actually are believers. And it's not just John, right? Another John, John Owen, a 17th century reformed theologian writes this. He says, the Holy Spirit produces joy in the hearts of believers directly by himself without using any other means. He secretly injects this joy into the soul, driving away all fears and sorrows, filling it with gladness and causing it to exult, sometimes with unspeakable raptures of the mind. Or Richard Sibbs, a Puritan theologian, says that the Holy Spirit, quote, produces spiritual ravishings, which are the very beginning of heaven, such that the Christian is in heaven before his time. This involves a secret assurance that the believer's is Christ's. And he goes on and says, it is a sweet kiss given to the soul. Or the Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson writes that by the spirit we experience, we experience the richness of the love of God in the spirit now being inundated with a sense of the divine love has been a hallmark of Christian experience in many different traditions throughout the ages. Now, none of those people that I just quoted are particularly charismatic theologically. None of them are theological mystics. They're just Christians. The Holy Spirit living in us is an experiential, often emotional evidence that we belong to Christ. So have you experienced this? Have you experienced being inundated with a sense of the divine love? 
Have you experienced that sweet kiss given to the soul? Have you felt the joy that brings about unspeakable raptures of the mind? If you were to tell me that you had a a best friend, but never once had like one of those moments late at night around a campfire, just like burying your souls with one another, If you had a best friend and never had one of those moments, I'd question your friendship. If you were to tell me that you were happily married, but never once experienced that like unpredictable feeling of affectionate love randomly wash over you, I'd have a few questions about your marriage. If you were to tell me that you were a Christian, and never once felt that joy that only comes by fellowship with the Spirit, I'd have some questions about your Christianity. Being a Christian means that we fellowship with God, and that fellowship with God will naturally result in healthy individuals, in a psychological, emotional experience that we, even I, shouldn't be as shy to both talk about and express as I am. Now, to be sure, right, this means different things for different people. God made us diverse. And a sure way to wreak spiritual havoc is to flatten everybody's experience with the Spirit down into a single metric and then apply it unilaterally and universally to everyone as if everybody should encounter the Holy Spirit in the same way, to the same degree, at the same time as everybody else. But I'm not you. You're not me. None of us are Pastor Matt. And so we're going to experience the the fellowship and joy with the Holy Spirit at different times and in different ways. While having the Holy Spirit and experiencing him is a mark of a true Christian, having the same experience as like that Christian over there who seems super spiritual is not a mark of true belief. We all experience him in different ways. But John says that when you have those days of doubt— when Satan tempts you to despair, when you're not sure if you're a Christian or not, John says, remember, look in. Remember that time when you were flipping through the pages of scripture and just couldn't get enough that one morning. Remember that time when you sang death arrested with your church family and were brought to tears on Easter Sunday. Remember that time when you were just like, overwhelmed with the fellowship, with the joy of the Spirit as you were on a prayer walk through the woods. When we doubt whether or not we are truly believers, John tells us, look in. These things are evidence that you are his and that his Spirit is living inside you. So he says, one way that we know we're really believing, what we say we believe us by looking in, The second way that we can find out if we really believe what we say is by looking out. So all the way back up at the beginning of our passage now in verse 19, John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now, most scholars believe that the by this refers to the verse directly preceding it, the one that we talked about last week, namely that we should not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. How do we know if we are of the truth? By looking at our deeds and whether or not they are loving. 
Right? A, sin- a similar sentiment is echoed later in verse 24. He writes, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. What commandments? Well, again, look at the verse directly before where he says, this is his commandments, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, pay really close attention to just how John words that sentence. What does he say? He says, this is his commandments. How many commandments? One. It's singular. This is his commandment. One commandment. What's that one commandment? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. Now, I'm like no mathematician, but that sounds like two commands, believing in Jesus and loving one another. But John here grammatically says that they are one. In other words, Believing in Jesus Christ and loving one another are always, in every circumstance, inseparable from each other. To the extent that we believe in Jesus Christ, we will love one another. Or to put it negatively, to the extent that we fail to love one another, that is evidence, at least in some respect, that we have failed to believe in Jesus which prompts the necessary question, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. (laughs) If you, don't clap for that, that was terrible. If you ask our broader culture what love is, what will they tell you? They'll tell you that love is like this unconditional um, acceptance of another person. If you ask a Hallmark movie what love is, you'll get that love is like coming home from the big city to your hometown and meeting a rustic, dreamy, blue-collar worker who has a lot of unprocessed emotional baggage. (laughs) Love is a feeling, an attitude, a behavior, a noun, or if you ask a tennis player, a fancy way of saying zero. We feel love. We fall in love. We make love. Our world uses the term love for anything and everything. And so I can say, like on the one hand, I love my wife. And I love tacos. And they're both true. Now, I love my wife and I love tacos in very different ways, thank goodness. But it still makes sense. And so if we're going to say that the way to confirm our relationship with Christ is to evaluate how well we love others, defining love is of utmost importance. And there's no better way to define biblical love than to let the Bible define it. And I know of no clearer passage to define biblical love than 1 Corinthians 13, which most of you, if you've hung around Christians for any length of time, you'll know this. This is a paragraph that makes its way onto coffee mugs and greeting cards and worms its way into pretty much every wedding I've ever been to. But this passage just isn't about romantic love. Now, if you've had that, if you use that in your wedding, which is probably like half of you, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just saying it's about a lot more than romantic love. It applies to all types of love that Christians should have for everyone. So I'm just going to read it. And as I do, think to yourself, do these verses apply to my life? Like, would these verses be true of me and how I treat my spouse, my kids, my friends, and that coworker that I really cannot stand? Could I 
erase the word love from these verses and write in your name instead and have these verses still be true. This is how God defines love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogance or rude. Love does not insist on having its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. How did these verses describe your life? Now, if, if we're honest, none of us are perfect. None of, none of us are going to have these verses describe our lives perfectly. And so the question we should ask is not whether or not we're loving perfectly, but is there a general upward trajectory of love in our lives such that day after day, year after year, we are becoming more and more like these verses than we were before? Because if we belong to Christ, there will be such a trajectory. C.S. Lewis talks about how like, the Christian life is one of peaks and valleys. That if you would take a graph and plot the normal Christian experience of, with love on the graph, the graph wouldn't look like a straight line that just goes up and to the right. There are peaks and valleys. Right? One day you might be incredibly loving and a patient person and a kind person, and the next day, you know, not so much. So our progress in Christian love isn't something that we measure in seconds, minutes, and hours, and days, but in months, years, and decades of following Jesus. There will be ups and downs, but is there a general upward trajectory of, of over the years, increased love in your life? So that's the second place that John tells us to look for assurance, out to our love of others. High degrees of Christian assurance should always be accompanied by high degrees of Christian love. You cannot love God and hate your brother. So he tells us, look in, see the indwelling Holy Spirit. Look out, see your spirit wrought love for your brother. And the last place John tells us to look when we're doubting our own belief is up. Take a look with me at, at verse 20. He writes, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So here, John gives us a healthy dose of realism. Sometimes, even when we look in and we see the Spirit's work in our lives, sometimes, even when we look out and see that increased trajectory of love in our life, sometimes our own heart still condemns us and says, you're not really a Christian. You don't really have faith. 
That's not genuine belief that you have. That time when you just felt the Holy Spirit, when you thought that you were fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, you were being emotionally manipulated. Those outward, like that outward trajectory of love in your life isn't anything special. That's just normal human maturity. And honestly, it's probably selfishly motivated. You just want people to like you. So John says, in the times that our hearts condemn us, look up. God is greater than your heart. Look up and realize once again that the ground of your salvation is not your capacity to encounter the Spirit or your ability to love others well. The ground of your salvation is and always has been outside of yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. So, like, in the wintertime, my friends and I would go to this retreat center and we would play broom ball. If you're unfamiliar with that amazing sport, um, it's just like ice hockey, but um, for uncoordinated people who don't know how to ice skate. And um, before we would play broom ball, we would have to like test if the ice was going to hold us, if the pond ice was thick enough. And so we would stand like by the edge of the pond, timidly like poking the ice with our brooms, throwing rocks on it, seeing if we could throw it through um, to see if it was safe enough for us to get on. And oftentimes the ice in the pond was like feet thick. Like you could have driven trucks across it and it would have been perfectly fine. And yet here we were like gingerly shuffling our feet on the edge, unsure if, if the ice was going to hold us or not, timidly throwing pebbles at it. Um, now, were we safe on the ice? Yes, is the answer. We were safe on the ice regardless of if we felt we were safe or not because the safety of the ice, the security of the ice didn't depend on our knowledge of its safety in order to be safe. It was secure whether we knew it or not. On the ice, right, the person that like timidly shuffled their feet on the edge constantly like thinking that the ice was going to crack and that they were going to fall through, but was still on the ice, just shuffling their feet, scared that they were going to fall through. That person and the person who just with unbothered confidence leapt onto the ice and started skating around. Those two people were equally secure. So too with Christ. The person who trusts Christ's work on the cross with their whole being doesn't have a doubt in their mind that they're saved. And the person who timidly places an ounce of faith in Christ because that's all they can muster up and they're scared and they don't know where else to go, those two people are equally secure because our faith is not our great savior. Our belief is not our great savior. Our ability to love others well is not our great savior. Our capacity for encountering the Holy Spirit in our emotional life is not our great savior. Jesus Christ is our great savior. We couldn't have fallen through that ice if we had tried. And dear troubled Christian, This morning, if you have placed an ounce of faith in Jesus Christ, you are in his hands. You you can't fall through if you tried. Our assurance, ultimately, 
is not in our ability to generate feelings of confidence, but in God himself. So if you are here this morning and your heart condemns you, the ultimate place to look is not further inward and continue that cycle of mind games and endless introspection, but outward, upward to the cross of Christ, because when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. So church, look in. Remind yourself of the fellowship that you've had with the Spirit. Look out and see that increased trajectory of love in your life. But most importantly, look up outside yourself to the cross of Christ where your true security lies. Let's pray. Father, we sang just a few minutes ago that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. As we continue in worship, by your spirit, help us look up. Help us look to the one who made an end to all our sin. Reassure our hearts that if we have any faith in Jesus Christ, that we are in his hands and that we couldn't fall through if we tried. In Christ our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.